Well, I'll read again Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 to 39. We began looking at these verses last week, and we'll finish them today. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 to 39. The Lord Jesus speaking says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to be honest with ourselves. I pray that you would stir our hearts. There's no doubt, Lord, that it is so much easier to put spiritual things out of our minds and just live in this world, in this life, in the flesh, just drifting along. But Lord, you've called us to something higher. You've called us to a deeper examination and a, and a deeper, more lasting work. And so I pray that you would do that work in us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Most of you, if not all of you, are probably aware this week two preachers died. I want to give you a, a little overview of these two preachers or pastors. One of them will go down in history as America's pastor, as if that were a title worth claiming or being proud of, but that'll, that'll be his title. And the other will be remembered by name by some close friends and some close family members. And he'll be remembered by the story of his death by a, a slightly larger group. But other than that, the world will not know him. He was not America's pastor. He was the pastor of a local church. If I told you the name of it, even locals don't know where it is. If you're from here, you don't know where this church is. One of them died old and full of years, at 99 years old, and he left behind him a multi-million dollar empire. The other died at the age of 26, leaving behind a wife and two small children, the youngest of which will probably not remember her father except by photograph and stories as she ages. One of them died in his home of natural causes. The other died completely unexpectedly and without warning. There are a lot of differences in these two stories that, we've, that have been in our minds this week. But there are also some things that are true of both, that they both share together. I would imagine both of these men knew and believed wholeheartedly that their day would come. They knew it. They didn't know when, but they knew it would come eventually, their, their final hour. Both of them saw one day in this life, and they didn't see the next. They had a final day. Both of them woke up on one day, and they did not wake up on the next day. Both of them, with their physical eyes, saw the light of this life and this world one last time, and then they closed their eyes, and they'll never see this world again. Both of them entered into eternity. Neither of them will ever have another opportunity to, to do this life again. It's done. Whatever they did... It, it lies there at their death. Now, I wonder if you ever think about that day. See, that's what these types of events should do for us is, is get us to think. Do you ever think about that day when you will breathe your last breath? Because it's coming. There's coming a day when your lungs will take in one more breath and the next exhale will be 
the, the air gone. It'll, it'll never enter your lungs again. I wonder if you think about spiritual things, the things that, that sort of characterize us as Christians. Do you ever think about the fact that that day will come when you read the Bible for the last time? You'll never open it again. Or you behold Christ through the, the dim glass of faith one more time and then never again in this life. You ever think about the day when you will hear the gospel preached one last time and you'll never hear it again in this life? That day when you'll experience the effectual work of the Spirit on your heart in this life for the last time, or we might say you'll hear Christ Himself speak through His Spirit, through the Word of God, one last time and then never again. Or maybe you're here and you're not a Christian do you ever think about the day when you will receive the last gospel appeal, the very last time anyone will ever plead for your soul, and then it's over? Because that day, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, that day's coming for every one of us. The day when we will hear the last appeal, the final appeal. And in our text today, these three verses, the scribes and the Pharisees and the nation of Israel as a whole are receiving their final appeal. or They are, they are hearing from Christ for the very last time. And with all lasts, if I just continue to go down the list, the last time you'll ever do this, and the last time you'll ever do this, it's sobering. It should be a sobering thought, a sobering picture. This picture, Matthew 23, verses 37 to 39, is one of the most horrifying pictures in all of Scripture. I would say probably as horrifying as that day when many will say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I, didn't, I don't know you, because this is the last time they'll ever hear from him. So as an overview, verses 37 to 39, these three verses, well, let's first begin by understanding the reality of a final appeal. Understand what's happening in these verses. Again, I've said it many times, if we are to understand the full weight of what's happening at this point in Matthew's gospel, we have to be reminded and convinced that what is happening here is central to the story of redemption in the Scriptures. Now last week we spent our time just focusing in on the, the importance of Jerusalem as a city. We see in this chapter these seven woes. Jesus pronounces judgment and curses on these men seven times. In verses 32 through 36, we saw that our Lord is not dealing with hypotheticals. He's not saying, if you men do this or if you men do that. He's saying, you have done this, and because you've done it, judgment is coming. We see in verse 37, Old Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. This place where God had chosen to make His name dwell, the very place where God had poured out His glory into Solomon's temple, the place where God would, would meet with His people, by this time, in addition to hypocrisy and lawlessness and greed and all uncleanness, they're murderers of God's preachers. And that's what he's pointing out. Every time God would send you a preacher, or most of the time, a lot of the time, you'd kill them. You didn't want to hear what they had to say. And so judgment is coming. Verse 36 promises, this generation, he says, all these things will come upon this generation. Within 30 to 40 years, that generation, those standing there, in addition to their own children, will reap the whirlwind of God's judgment because of their actions. In chapter 24, we will read of a prophetic word concerning that judgment. Jesus is going to speak about it. But notice the language here in verse 38. Your house is left to you desolate. Not was or will be, but is presently left to you desolate. Verse 39, you will not see me again. He's saying very clearly, this is the last time. And then in verse 24, or chapter 24, verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away. 
he's done with this, with this group. This major turning point in God's plan of redemption centers around this city, Jerusalem, and the nation and the religion that this city represented. The temple within the city represented the religion of these people that we tend to call Judaism or Judaism. That's what it stood for. And in these verses, again, concerning that city, concerning that religion and those people that the city represented, we see a, a, an example, an example of a theme that runs throughout the Scriptures, namely that of a final appeal, a last word, the closing of a door or the end of an era. We see here the truth that God has, God does, and God will wash His hands of a people and say, I'm done. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3, the very first book of the Bible, God says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. Some translations say, Strive with man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. In other words, these people are wicked. I'm not going to tarry with them forever. In 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 14, the Word of God says, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. You know, the story, after two major sins in Saul's uh, kingship, that spirit which God had put into Saul at his becoming king, God says, I'll take that back. Now Saul remained king, but God was not with him to bless him in his kingship any longer. God had chosen another man, King David. In 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 26 and 27, we read these words, Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of His great wrath by which His anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah out of my sight as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said my name shall be there. Even after the many reforms of Josiah, great and good reforms, God says, that's good, but it's not enough. I've made my decision. In Christ's own ministry, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 6, He says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 14, what we tend to call the disciples' discourse. He says, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. In other words, Christ never implies that His messengers must tarry and linger time after time after time with men who are obstinate and who would choose rather to mock their king than to bow the knee to their king. And in Acts chapter 28 and verse 28, the Apostle Paul displays this very truth. He says to the Jews he had preached, they would not believe. He says, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. In other words, he says, I'm not obligated to continue over and over and over and over. I've preached. You do not believe. I'll go somewhere else. God does not tarry with men forever, nor does He compel His messengers to do so. There are times when God gives a final appeal. Now when we read these words, it doesn't seem to me like the final appeal is here. It seems like this section is more like a gracious formality from the Lord, just letting these men know and letting this nation know the final appeal has already taken place. I've already sent to you my true and faithful word. My son, God himself, in the flesh had already come to this nation. They would not receive him. And so in light of that, Jesus is saying, your time is up. They had already received their final appeal. And so we're reading almost the, the postscript of that final appeal. Now we looked at the beginning of verse 37 last week. We'll Open up the rest of verse 37. We understand the history of the violence of this city that they had caused, or they had caused the death of many of the prophets and righteous men. And so God was going to bring upon them the judgment 
But notice here the, the reason for the coming judgment. The reason. Stoning prophets and, and righteous men, crucifying Christ, persecuting His church after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, these are not the root problems of these men. These are the fruit growing off of their tree. So here I think we get a, a little bit of a glimpse of what that heart issue is. Notice he says, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? Hopefully you remember what we talked about several weeks ago, the theme of pedigree, spiritual and biological pedigree. Biologically, we have children, they have children, they have children. Spiritually, we teach, then they teach, then they teach. We fall into a line, either the seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent, the devil. The men to whom Jesus is speaking were sons of their ancestors, and they were the offspring of the devil, serpents, and a brood of vipers spiritually, but also biologically, they were actually the physical descendants of those who killed the prophets. After these men, there will also come men. We, we already read that they were making proselytes. These men probably had children that they would train up in their same faith, and so they would, the, the physical and the spiritual lineage would continue after these men. Jesus has already alluded to the specific sins of these men and the fact that that present generation, those men and their children, would reap the consequences of their sin. Notice what he says. How often would I have gathered your children together? You see, Christ is not speaking of these men. He's not speaking of His present audience. He's speaking about those who would come after them. How often I would have gathered your children together. And, and then notice this wonderful analogy. As a hen gathers her brood under her wings. You could picture a hen coming, taking the initiative, finding her chicks in a storm or in the presence of a, a hawk and, and gathering them under her wings. She knows who are hers and she gathers them there, giving, basically laying herself out in personal self-sacrificing protection for her chicks. When I read this, I was reminded of what we saw last week from Psalm 31:20. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. Psalm 32, 7, you are a hiding place for me. This is the type of love and protection that Christ offers to all men who will come to Him without exception. If you will come, I, I want to gather you. I want to give myself as a sacrificial covering over you. I want to be your protection. How often I would have gathered your children as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Notice here Israel's unbelief. You were not willing. You, present generation of leaders, were not willing that I gather your children. This present generation, especially those scribes and Pharisees, remember they were not only not willing, but they actually worked against worked contrary to the, the, the gathering work that Christ intended to do of, uh, for their, again, both biological and spiritual offspring. This was part of their sins. In, in verse 13, he said, You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. That would be those who followed them, those who took their word uh, as... Uh, truthful or authoritative. The, the sin there was that of closing up the pipeline of truth concerning Christ and the kingdom to those who might listen and believe. Remember, they had made rules. If you confess Him to be the Christ, you're out of the synagogue. But that immediately puts a blanket over the minds of the people to say, well, I'm not even going to go there. I don't want to suffer that consequence, so I won't even give Him the time of day. Not only would they not hear, but they would not allow others to hear. Now, why were they so adamant about this? Why would they not allow Christ to be uh, followed? Why would they not allow their followers to come to Him? Well, I think the Lord shed some light on their root problem in John chapter 5. 
verses 37 to 40, he gets down to the root of the issue. He says, The Father has sent me, or the Father who sent me, has himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom He has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come that you may have life, or come to me that you may have life. Notice their root sins. You do not believe the one whom God has sent. You refuse to come to me. The root sin in the hearts of these men is the same root sin that's in the hearts of all men. It's unbelief. And so they shut off the kingdom, refused others who would perhaps enter in, they killed the prophets and preachers from God. They will eventually crucify the Lord of glory. Why? Because they didn't believe. It was unbelief was their problem. And they passed this unbelief on to their children. I, I quoted Matthew 27, 25 before. All the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. This generation gladly says, whatever the consequences are, dump it on us and go ahead and dump it on our children while you're at it. In Luke 23 and verse 28, you'll remember there were some women weeping as Jesus went to the cross. And He says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for Me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Again, I've made this point before. That which had been perpetuated by this generation had lasting effects on their offspring. Their sin directly affected their children for the worse. In other words, they had effectively consigned their own children, the next generation, to hell, not because they're somehow going to be punished for the sins of their fathers, but by hiding the truth. They would not allow them to see the truth because they themselves did not believe it to be the truth. So what's the reason for the coming judgment? Well, ultimately, it's unbelief. It's rejection of Christ, the Word of God coming to men. Christ would have gathered them, but not only were they not willing, they, they wouldn't allow their children to be gathered. So then in verse 38, we see the consequences of this. Unbelief led them to reject Christ and to conceal His Lordship from even their children. The consequence, verse 38, See, your house is left to you desolate. Now there is a, a direct literal fulfillment of these words. And I believe there's also a spiritual parallel to the words. Your house is a reference to the temple in which he stood. The glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ stood in the temple, but was about to depart from that temple. In chapter 21, he had, in reference to that temple, had quoted Scripture, My Father's house shall be called a house of prayer. Now he says, Your house is left to you desolate. In other words, he's saying, Here are the keys to the house. Take it. It's yours. I'll have nothing more to do with it. He has no use for it. That's literal. This temple will be left Desolate, But then figuratively, remember that the temple symbolizes the dwelling place of God with men, the, God's presence with His people. The temple was the center of Judaism as a religious system. And so Christ leaves the temple, we'll see next week. That's a picture. God Himself walking away from this people, walking away from Judaism as a religious system. That's the fruit. You don't believe in Christ, He leaves, and that temple, that religion is left desolate, a desert place, a wasteland, a useless tundra, absent of all essential life-sustaining nutrients. It's not there anymore. You go out there, you're just going to die because there's no life. Because of the reality of a final appeal, there comes a time when Christ will walk away 
in light of persistent unbelief and rejection. And when Christ walks away, the result is desolation. So that's the consequence. Notice in verse 39, fourthly, the finality of unbelief. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Notice this is the desolation. He's describing it for them. Your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me. That's the desolation. Christ gone. The abandonment of this physical temple and God's rejection of this nation is evidenced by the picture, the absence of Jesus Christ from their midst. And again, 24-1, Jesus left the temple and was going away. We're watching the spiritual acts of God portrayed by Christ's physical presence. He's walking away, and as they see Him leave, they are seeing a picture of the glory of the Lord departing from their presence. Now, Jerusalem will continue to be a bustling city. The religion of the Jews would continue all of its rituals for many years. The leaders of the Jews would continue to make their proselytes, and they would be zealous. They would actually persecute the Christian church. We see that in the life of Saul of Tarsus. But even in the appearance of, or in, in light of having the appearance of life, the appearance of vitality, they were void of the glory of God. And then in AD 70, the place becomes a physical wasteland. But up until then, if you looked at Jerusalem, you would think, well, that's a bustling city. Lots of life, lots of religion, lots of people. But it was a desolate place. Notice the rest of the verse. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this is a difficult text. I took every commentary I had, and I made a list of every interpretation. And there are, there's a lot of disagreement. Remember the context. Judgment against apostasy. He's given seven woes. The audience here reprobate religious leaders and their followers. That's who he's speaking to. He's already discussed the nature of the desolation that will come. Christ will depart. God will abandon this people. Now the quote, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is from Psalm 118. They, they sang it at his triumphal in, entry. They will sing it again at Passover. This was one of the Hillel Psalms. They sang Psalm 113 to 118 at the Passover. They'll sing it again. I couldn't find any commentator that, that tied into that truth. But in its original usage, this psalm was not an affirmation of saving faith. It was an affirmation and a celebration of the identity of a stately ruler as God's chosen man. And so, you will not see me again until you say, you make this affirmation. Now the word until, you read some guys who will say that means that, that, that it's talking about a future event, but the word until does not reference a future event. The word until is a reference to the present state of things and what will continue to be the case based on certain met or unmet conditions. It's just a conditional word. The conditions may be met. Maybe the conditions will never be met. A lot of commentators are very dogmatic. Well, it means this. Well, it means that. But I think we can make some sense of it. It doesn't seem, to me anyway, that Christ would pronounce seven woes on this nation, that He would announce judgment on this group of apostate scribes and Pharisees and then give them a little glimmer of hope after He's just promised the desolation of, uh, and destruction of their religion. 
It seems like he's just codifying, making certain their doom. Remember that phrase, for I tell you. Whenever the Lord Jesus says that, he's emphasizing a previously made point. I'm saying this, and then for I tell you, let me drive it home that you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now there will come a day when all men, including the men who stood there that day, will affirm Jesus of Nazareth is God's chosen ruler and Messiah when he comes in glory. Every man will say it. But until that day, these men are bereft of any saving sight, understanding of Jesus Christ. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, your house is left to you desolate because I'm leaving. And such will be the case because you have not met the condition of my continued presence, which was faith. But someday they will make that statement or something um, near to it. They will affirm his lordship and his uh, anointing, anointment from God. I don't believe this has reference to a mass ingathering of ethnic Jews. I sure hope that would be the case. Um, but I don't think that that's what's happening here. Now, some might say, well, does that mean God has completely abandoned His people? Which is the exact question Paul asks and answers in Romans 11. Has God cast off His people? God, Paul says, by no means. He has not cast off His people whom He foreknew, which we learned from Romans 8 and earlier, those whom He foreknew, He predestined. That's a reference to all of the elect. The example that Paul gives is His own personal salvation. God's not cast off the people completely. Yes, Jewish people can be saved. Yes, people from this ethnic group can be saved. But as a, a, uh, a, a nation, as a corporate body, the kingdom of heaven has been taken to them and given to a people producing its fruits, you see. So in these three verses, the Lord makes clear that the final appeal has been given. The nation has refused and chosen to remain in unbelief. In light of these truths, Christ is vacating the temple. God is washing His hands of these people. And there will be no other concerted efforts to redeem this apostate nation. Men will be sent. Preachers will go. But as a nation, as a whole, it's not going to happen. That's what the Lord's saying. Now, there are four things that I believe sort of rise to the surface and become applicable for us. What, what can we learn here? What can we take home from this? We're not ethnic Jews. We're not scribes or Pharisees. We weren't there that day, but there are four things, I think, which are obvious here. Number one, someday, maybe today, you will receive your final appeal. We've seen the biblical theme. We see it displayed here. There will come a day when you receive your final, your last appeal. We could go even further and say there will come an hour, a minute. There will come a second where God has appealed and the next second there's no more appeal. God will cease striving with you in this life. And it could be today. What if it is today? There are no doubt thousands, if not more, tens of thousands of people around the world who will attend church today, who will go and worship in a place of worship somewhere, and today will be the last time they ever set foot in a place of worship. And it could be the same thing for you. This might be the last time you ever attend a worship service. It could be the very day when you receive your final appeal. Now, when I say appeal, I'm not assuming that it has to be evangelistic if you're already a Christian. It could just be the, the last time the Spirit works a sanctifying work in your heart in this life. That'll be done in glory. When you die, the sanctification is complete. All that remains after that point will be the glorification of your physical flesh. 
But if you're unsaved, if you're not a Christian, the final appeal will be the last time you ever hear the outward call of the gospel come from a preacher's mouth. There will be a day when you receive the very last ministration of the Spirit of God in this life. Now I wonder how many of you came here today under the impression that this would be the last sermon you would ever hear. How often do you imagine when you wake up, it's the last time I'll ever have to do that, last time I'll ever hear an alarm clock. How often do you imagine when you lay down at night, well, this will be the last time I ever close my eyes. I won't see tomorrow. How often do you think that this will be the last time I have a conversation with my spouse or with my children? I used the situation this week with my own children, with Kay specifically. I said, you know, I bet that man, before he went hunting, I bet he told his wife and his kids something to the effect of, I'll see you later. I'll see you after a while. I'll be home later. And he didn't. He never seen him again. They'll never see him again until glory. How often do you think about that? How often do you go into the, the closet of private prayer or in private devotions under the impression this will be the last time in this life that will ever open up the Scriptures, that will ever pray? How many times when you go into a conversation with a, a friend or a family member or a co-worker, you, you think, this is the last time I'll ever get to talk with them, the last time I'll ever get to plead with their souls? How many of you men, when you sit down at family worship, do you think this will be the last time I ever open the Word of God before my wife and my children? You don't. You don't do that. You go on your merry way. You presume upon God's kindness. You assume that you will die old and full of years and that whatever God has to say today, He can say next week and next week and the day after that and the day after that, all the while you will revel in your sin until you get good and ready to go to Him. And that's not the case. Someday, every person under the sound of my voice will have their lasts. You'll see the light of this life one last time and it'll be over. What then? In that second, what then? That's the point of all of this. Everything that I'm doing, everything we do together, it doesn't matter what happened in the past. What matters is in that split second, what then? What's going to happen? If it's today, again, what, what if what you're hearing from my mouth is the last words, the last sermon you ever hear. You never hear anyone preach again. This is why Baxter said preach as a dying man to dying men as to never preach again because you don't know. What if nobody ever pleads for your soul again? What if the Spirit of Christ never prompts your spirit again, your heart? What if there comes a time when you think like you might begin to want to seek after Him and He's no longer to be found? Imagine the young Pharisee in that city. Goes home that evening, follows his buddy, patting, patting one another on the back and uh, agreeing to meet up the next day to continue to plan the crucifixion of this king. And then you lay down at nighttime and your conscience begins to bother you and you begin to worry. And so then you're running through the streets of Jerusalem, pounding on every door, crying out that Jesus would come out and somehow offer some comfort to your soul. But he left. He's not there. I hope that won't be any of you on your deathbed, crying out for some sort of comfort for your sin-sick soul from a Christ who departed a long time ago. What a terror that is, or would be. So that's the first truth. Someday, maybe today, you will receive your final appeal. Are you ready for it? Do you live every day as if it would be your last day? Secondly, the personal, abiding presence of Jesus Christ is presently and will be eternally your only hope for life and salvation. I'll say that again. The personal, abiding presence of Jesus Christ is presently and will eternally be your only hope for life and salvation. 
Just as it was for Israel physically, so it is for all men spiritually. When Christ left, that's desolation. Because only Christ is the Word of God made flesh. Only Christ is the light of men. Only Jesus Christ took on the flesh of men. Only Christ bled and died for men. Only Christ is to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption from God. It's only Him. Right now, presently, only Christ in the soul will raise you from the dead. Only by His presence, through His Spirit, can we obtain life. Other than that, we're dead. While we might walk around in these physical bodies, we're spiritually dead apart from Christ. And also eternally, in glory, it will be the presence of Christ Jesus that will sustain the life, the eternal life of every blood-bought child of God for eternity. And so your only hope for life now and salvation in glory is the personal abiding presence of Christ by His Spirit in the soul. Now that's true for every family and every household. If your house is going to be a, a house of prayer, if it's going to be a little church, it's only going to be because Christ abides there by His Spirit. It's true for every local church. The only way a local church is of any value to the kingdom is if Christ abides there. It's true of every activity that you might undertake in the name of Christ. His presence by His Spirit giving life and making effectual all that you do is the only means that any lasting fruit will be produced. He has to be there. His Spirit has to be in it. Again, Jerusalem would go on for many years with structures, buildings, copies of the Scriptures, men who sat on Moses' seat, they had their history of God's dealing with their people. They had their activities. They had professions of faith. They had titles like rabbi. They had what we would consider all of the appearance of godliness, but they denied the power. They had not the power because Christ had departed. It didn't matter what all they did outwardly. Christ departed. It's desolate. He doesn't leave them to try harder. He doesn't leave them to overcome some obstacles or, or go on with a partial presence or I'm leaving you to figure it out on your own. He leaves them desolate, void of any life-giving, life-sustaining elements at all. And that'll be you. That'll be your household. That'll be this church. That'll be every effort we make to do something for the kingdom. If we do not have the abiding presence of Christ working in and through it, it will be void of any life-giving, life-sustaining element at all. It'll be a wasteland. And we can waste our time for years and years and years, coming on Sunday, coming on Wednesday, coming on Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, or seven days a week if you want to. If Christ's presence is not there, you're just hanging out in the desert. You're starving. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. He's the light. He's the bread. He's the water. He's the life. He's the vine. He's all of it. Only Christ, only His presence gives any life. Now, at this point, there are many who would profess to be Christians who begin to wonder, well, I wonder, how little can I get by with and still keep Christ around, still maintain some semblance of His work. I mean, I don't want to lose it completely, but I don't want to you know, go out of my way. A young sapling does not see how far its roots can go away from the water, or its leaves can grow away from the light before it starts to feel the lack of nourishment and then sort of steer back into place. No, roots go down and branches go up toward the light. An infant, some of you mothers know this, it does not see how far away and how long it can stay away from its mother's breast. No, they cling and they scratch and they paw and they root and they whimper at the very notion of hunger. You can't put them down. See, the question for the true believer is not how far away from Christ can I get before I begin to turn into a desert. You know, where's that line where the grass sort of stops and the sand starts? Now the question, the, the heartbeat, the whimper of the soul of a believer is, how can I get more of Christ? How can I get closer to Him? 
How can I hold on tighter? How can I squeeze longer? What type of baggage do I need to start cutting so that I can hold on longer, cling more tightly to my Savior? And even if I have to stretch my roots down deeper, beyond the depths of every fleshy hindrance, I must get closer to the life source. I must have more of my Jesus. That's a believer. Is that how you think? Can you say with the psalmist, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you, O God. The personal, personal abiding presence of Christ is presently and will eternally be your only hope for life and salvation. Number three. This one's even longer. Should you find yourself in a hundred years or this very night in the torments of hell, it will not be for any other reason except that you chose to remain in unbelief and you rejected the notion that Jesus Christ is the only source of present and eternal spiritual life. We've already determined everyone will at some point hear their last appeal. Everyone will breathe their last. Everyone will take their last glimpse of this material world. For some of you, it might be this afternoon or tonight. I believe it's safe to say that within a hundred years, everyone in this room, including those in the womb, will have entered their eternal reward. In that moment, again, we're thinking about eternity. In that moment, when you close your eyes, you take your last breath, and you open your eyes in eternity, should you in that moment realize that you're not being welcomed into the presence of Christ, but you're plummeting into everlasting torment, you will not be able to blame anyone but yourself. It will not be for any other reason. It will not be because of some lack in God. It will not be because of some insufficiency in Christ as a perfect Savior. It will not be for lack of knowledge or lack of revelation. It won't be because you just didn't have time or you got too busy. It won't be because there was a confusion over the facts. You won't be able to say, well, I... I thought I understood the gospel. I sort of wanted to understand it. No, you didn't. If you cared about your soul, you'd be grabbing the sleeve of a, another Christian and saying, please tell me how I can know Christ. It'll be because you didn't believe. You chose to remain in unbelief. And I believe as you plummet into hell, if the fall is long enough, you'll spend every breath you have in unhindered mockery of Christ, scorning His death, jeering at His people all the way down. Whatever suppression of, of your true evil intentions there might be in this life will be loosed in that moment. And like the scribes and the Pharisees who there await you, regardless of your confession of faith, it will be because you have rejected the notion that Jesus Christ is the only source of life. It will be because you sat through services just like this, listening to this lisping, stammering tongue, make attempt after attempt to set before you Christ, crucified as the only sufficient Savior for all who will come to them. And in your heart you said, No thank you, sir, I'm fine. I don't want that. I'm happy with my life. I'm happy with my sins. What, me? Come to that poor suffering servant? I fare better on my own. So should you find yourself in the torments of hell, it will not be for any other reason except that you chose to remain in unbelief and you rejected Christ. And lastly, there will come a day, whether you anticipate it with joy or not, in which you bow your knees and you confess Jesus is Lord. Whether you anticipate it or not, whether you heed my words or not, whether you like the way I say it, how I say it or not, none of that matters. That day's coming. Whether you believe it's coming or not, that day's coming. Philippians 2, verses 8 through 11 tell us very, very clearly 
that being found in human form, he, that is Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of his obedience unto death, Jesus Christ has been granted a name and a position over and above all others. He reigns as king. He rules as judge. You see, he, he was once a suffering servant, but he's not a suffering servant anymore. He did one time hang on a cross, but he doesn't hang on a cross anymore. He was at one time really dead, but now he lives and he rules and he reigns. Now that sort of grates against people's flesh because you realize that if he's king, then I have to worship him and I have to obey him and I have to submit to him and I have to relinquish everything in my life for the sake of his kingdom. And people don't like that. But someday... I don't know how all this will play out, but perhaps in just the moments before being cast into the lake of fire, a rod of iron will crinkle your knees. His awesome power will bend your back. His majestic holiness will loose your tongue. And you will say with every creature, including these scribes and Pharisees, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's my Lord. He's Lord of all. He rules me. What He says about me is true. What He does to me right now is right and just, and I will not question it. There will come a day, whether you anticipate it or not, in which you bow your knees and confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. My encouragement would be to do it today. Don't wait. Now the Lord's table is for those who willingly, gladly, joyfully, from a new principle of grace within their hearts, say it now. Jesus is my Lord. And their lives produce the evidence. You look at, you look at your life. It says that person believes that Jesus is Lord. So take a minute. Examine your heart. Remember, the day is coming. Examine your heart. And then we'll come to the table.